0: This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, the continuing story of a former orthopedic surgeon who's gone to the dogs. And that Muppet Show reference should tell you something about my lack of depth of knowledge of today's topic soap operas. That much maligned TV format, which in its original daytime incarnation has nearly disappeared, yet its serialized and or schlocky DNA is all over so much of today's television. I'm Mark Lintenmeier, or perhaps I was replaced for Pretty Much Pop season two with my evil twin. Tune in next time to find out.
1: I am Sarah Lynn Brooke, a writing professor and novelist. At least I think I am. Or maybe I have amnesia, and I'm actually the matriarch of a powerful and wealthy family and hiding a few dark secrets.
2: I am Kayla Dreisey. I am a writer by night, a veterinary hospital manager by day, history nerd, happy to tell anyone who will listen why Lyndon Johnson was the best president we've ever had.
0: Yes, so Kayla was on our disability representation episode a while ago. And it's good enough to, in the new season two regime, to be a guest co host. So, yes, we should say, as little as I know about soap operas, you know a little more, right? You took a class at least.
2: Yeah. I, I have a degree in screenwriting. So, theoretically, we've done a few units on soaps. And certainly, those are a place where new writers are targeted to start.
0: But what's your actual background? I know you're doing this because I asked you to do this. But,
2: <laughs> yeah. So, I have watched a lot of soap operas. I have also watched a lot of more contemporary serial TVs. Hardcore Downton Abbey fan. I spend a lot of time watching these serial dramas because, A, as a writer, they're an interesting way to see how people do things. But they also are something that I'm really passionate about. And my goal is to become a drama serial writer. Probably not soaps specifically. Probably more primetime television. But that serial format is one that I find really interesting. And having gotten my education in the UK, they have a very high opinion of soap operas. They're definitely part of the contemporary cultural landscape. I think in the US, we've kind of dropped some of the value that we have in them. But within the UK, they're still very well respected and they're very fundamental in their pop culture.
0: So I'm assuming that our audience will be deeply in prestige TV, and so I think one of the things we wanted to talk today about was how a lot of that serialized TV really is so, you know, Mad Men, you mentioned Downton Abbey, This Is Us is one I watch with my wife. Those are very, very soapy in many ways, but Sarah Lynn, you convinced me during this pre-call that we had, for only supporters have heard so far, but that we should... Consider even the uncut version, the daytime soap, this uh, daily recorded, notoriously trashy. I don't know. That's one of the things we want to talk trashy. about. Trashy. Yes. Yeah, so, we'll make <laughs> the pitch fired. again. <laughs> make the pitch again. What's interesting about this and sort of what your history and your, uh, I know you had to research them to write your book. I did.
1: Yeah. So my last novel that came out in March features the main character is a soap opera actress. And the reason why I wrote it, one of my inspirations was I was seeing that soap operas, I think there are only four on the air right now. And back when I was in high school in the late 80s, it seemed like there were a lot more. It seemed like there were a dozen or something on. And I think that there were even more on back in the, in the 70s. So I was really curious about why soap operas were kind of losing steam and why they were less popular in that daytime format You know that I had grown up with. So I've done some research. I also watched soap operas when I was a kid. I find that as a former actress too, it was kind of a ground for somebody to get, you know, a lot of good professional experience. And I was interested in that aspect as well. And also about why actors stay, you know, for you will have an actor who will not just use it as a jumping off ground, but you will also see actors like Susan Lucci who are, you know, in the same job, playing the same role for decades. And so I was kind of fascinated with that aspect as well.
0: Or why they don't. I was just listening to a podcast today that was talking about Kate Mulgrew of Star Trek fame on Ryan's Hope, that when she left that after four years or something, they just had another actress do her character. And in fact, went through like four more doing that character, which is bizarre to me. That seems like something that happens once in a while on, you know, a normal show. Now it's only sort of minor characters, you know, Game of Thrones, they'll swap out the big guy or so, you know, <laughs> just we need another big guy. He's wearing a mask the whole time. It really doesn't matter. But it it seems like something that maybe this says something about the level of willingness to suspension of disbelief might be quite a bit higher if you're willing to just like, even I've heard something about like, well, this person was sick this week. So we had a different actress just sub in for them just for the week and then go away? Like, what?
1: I mean, you do that in theater, right? So you'll have somebody who will come in, step in for roles on on the stage, and you know, you're willing to go with it as an audience member. And I also think too, that soap operas have, because they run every single day, you're doing a script, basically an episode a day. Often it's, they're doing it in real time. You know, it is, you know, has a lot of theatrical elements. So why not? If your main character, if If Bo from Days of Our Lives is going to be played by somebody else, your audience is more likely to go with it than if it's in, you know, Mad Men or something like that.
2: Yeah. And the reality with producing things at that speed is if an actor is out for two or three days, that could be a week's worth of plots that they're not in. And there's often many different writers working on soap operas, and it's hard to sub things in and change the lineup if something like that happens. So they kind of have to get creative with
0: that. So what is, you know, I threw out trashy, but one of the things I was coming in here with is, I think this probably reflects a widespread prejudice against the form. But of course, I haven't really spent that much time with it. I did, as a kid, on some summer vacation, when we just watched a lot of TV in the early 80s, late 70s, somewhere in there. I think it was like all my children that I watched for a couple weeks straight. At least I like. I had an experience. I had a soap experience, and then certainly I have. You know, I recognized. Like, well, you mentioned Kayla how in Britain they. So, is Skins considered a soap there? That British show.
2: Skins, not so much.
0: Okay. All right.
2: Coronation Street, Doctors, The Archers, the longest-running radio soap opera. I think they're going on fifty-plus years now.
0: Well, when I was watching Skins, I was feeling like I'm totally watching a soap opera. Like, this is the feeling that I, the debasement I feel myself putting myself through. (laughs) Just in terms of, I guess it's the amount of melodrama that is involved of, you know, I can feel them playing my heartstrings. And though they don't actually go like, you know, they don't have those old time musical stings, but like on This Is Us now, like they might as well. I guess the difference is maybe these newer shows, since they're expecting everybody to watch all of them, it's not just like appointment. If you happen to be watching that day, then you get it. And if you don't, then they're much more scrutinized. And so maybe there's a lot more, I would think, imagine, Kayla, you're saying there's so many different writers on a soap opera. Just making things coherent, I would imagine, is not maybe the, like, maybe it's, it's closer to a comic book if you're doing it this often. And likewise, comic books, like, you know, if you're a Spider-Man reader, you probably did not like get Spider-Man number one from 1960, whatever it was, and then go all the way up to the present. Like you would have to spend a significant portion of your life to do that. You probably just like jumped in at some point and like, now I'm a Spider-Man reader. And so that's more like, I think the soap experience. And so maybe it's not quite as important to like have a complete integrity of the character over the entire arc, Or or maybe you guys should tell me.
1: Well, it sounds like the writers are, Kaylee, you can also know more about this than I do, but it sounds like there's like this hierarchy, right? Like you have like your head writers Mm -hmm. who are there for big picture stuff, like, or a story, this is, you know, going to be our main story for the next, whatever, three or four weeks. And then you've got writers under them who outline, you know, maybe they'll sketch out a week's worth of episodes, and then you've got the writers under them, which I think is where the beginner writers are, right? That actually go day to day, and they're the ones to produce those daily scripts. So it's very much, they go from big picture, which sounds like novel writing to me, (laughs) in a lot of ways I relate. You know, they go from these big picture ideas up to the minutiae.
2: Yeah. So typically in a series like this, you would have a showrunner and the showrunner is in charge of making sure that the entire season has an end goal or arcs that they're going to fulfill. And then typically what you do is you break that down into sections within the season. And when you give the episode to somebody to write, you're going to say, okay, well, character A by the end of this episode needs to do this or go through this. Character B needs to go through this by this point. And then from there, it's really open to the writers to come up with the ways to get there. And I think that's one of the reasons that soaps can be really popular is because they feature such a large cast that writers can come in and they can say, okay, well, this character really wasn't used much last season. I'm going to use them and twist them into the plot that I have to write in to keep it going. And one of the things that soap operas, but televisions in general, one of the great things that the internet has given us, you know, gifts from the internet is fan culture. So as a writer, as really anybody getting into something, you don't necessarily need to read every Spider-Man because somebody on the internet has read every Spider-Man and they have put all of that information on there for you to access. So a lot of times it used to be writers would be given the previous few seasons, read through them, know what happened. That information is so much easier to get now thanks to the internet. So new writers can really jump into the middle of pretty big soap operas and take on these episodes and and do well with them because the resources are already there thanks to that fan culture. And you can also see what the fans want. Downton Abbey is a great example. It's one of my, I won't lie, it's a passion of mine. I really enjoy Downton Abbey. I think every American who loves British things just has to love Downton Abbey. It's a requirement to keep up your license as a fan. And a lot of the fans, okay, I was involved in the fan culture too. I'm not proud, but it was a rough time in life uh, while I was getting my degree.
0: Was there some uh, fanfic that came out of this as a writer?
2: I cannot confirm nor deny <laughs> these accusations. Um, I definitely didn't write about fan fiction as part of my dissertation. That totally didn't happen. <laughs> Again, not proud but there was a huge fan community that really wanted two particular characters to get together and by the end of the series sure enough it happened and the fans went absolutely insane and i honestly don't think that if that fan culture wasn't happening that they would have gotten there writers are a little narcissistic we want to see what people think of our stuff we want to see what they're enjoying and i can't imagine that the writers of that julian fellows wasn't looking to see what people wanted, or certainly the producers who were making boku bucks off of the show were not looking out into the internet land to say, "Okay, this is what the fans are really excited about
1: you're finding that they're doing that with these limited series now too, that when fans want more, so say you've got like white orchid. Have you guys been watching that? not yet, not yet okay it's so soapy, but it's a limited series, right? But they, I think they've already ordered another season or they're talking about it because there's been so much, it's been so popular. And each one of those characters is hilarious, some more than others, but it's like watching a car wreck or something. Sometimes it's like, you can't look away. Or Mayor of Easttown, like that also, even though that was prestige tv and it was a limited series i think they're talking about doing a season two i don't know how they're gonna bring everybody back but you know they're talking about it
0: just swap out the actors it's fine yeah no one'll notice
2: it's this really interesting wave that we ride in media where you know it used to be you would have these soap operas every single day there's an episode they're gonna go forever you're gonna like watch the actor die on screen they're gonna die in the saddle. And suddenly we're like, okay, well, this isn't a challenge. This isn't drawing me in anymore. And then we create these limited series where you get seven episodes and that's it. And you'll never see these people again. And as an audience, we're like, oh no, we want more of this. And I think we're going to start seeing that slip back into these series that are set up to only be one season or two. They're going to be pushed into multiples. And then we're going to have the same thing again where people are like, oh, I don't want 30 years of Down Abbey. It's an interesting wave that we ride. And I think we've, we're starting to see that pull back into these really long, drawn out series that we want as an audience.
0: So, is there a gravity within soap operas now? I did actually watch like a couple, like an episode and a half of General Hospital Now, whatever the current season that was on Hulu is. And it was very much like everybody's just referring to a lot of off screen people by their first names. And I, you know, and the scenes are like two minutes long. It's really just are you sure you don't have something more to tell me? And then they would like go to some other scene and I could tell that these characters like, Oh, these are some older people. They've been on the show a long time and and, you know, they're getting reacquainted, but these younger people, you know, they're okay. There's so So a lot of it seemed, I'm wondering like if they just posted seven episodes of this and said, this is a limited series, how would they have to change it? Is there any, is that sort of reverse gravity? We've seen how soap operas have affected everything else. You would think that everything else has been affecting soap operas as well. Do we know enough about current soap operas to say whether that's the case or not?
1: Well, I know that soap operas have traditionally featured issues that are important to women, to their audience, right? In addition to all of the crazy stuff that happens, you know, people falling out of helicopters, coming back from the dead and evil twins and all that, they'll also feature stuff that's important to whatever is going on at the time. And even though it can be kind of drawn out longer, and I think part of it is to have their bread and butter is making sure that you tune in tomorrow, right? And they do the same thing with prestige TVs. They want you to tune in next week and or continue to binge the series, whatever, on whatever platform you're using. But I think what soap operas have done is they really know how to, their pacing is so much slower than something that's going to be running in, in seven or eight episodes.
2: Yeah. And they've got so many characters built into it that they have that ability. Because you couldn't tell 12 people's stories in seven episodes. It would be completely incoherent. It would be too difficult to an audience. I mean, it may not be too difficult to an audience. An audience may be able to get it. But the audiences that we have now are not trained for that our audiences are really trained for okay this is seven episodes it's going to cover like three people that's going to be fine a soap opera gives you 10 15 characters to pull through and while it might seem like oh young person what i what do you think about this today what that's doing is that setting up that person's arc for the next episode or two episodes from that and it's keeping them all kind of twisting together And it's stretching it all out so you don't feel overwrought by one particular person. And as an audience member, you can get emotionally invested in different people. Like, okay, this episode didn't feature person A that I love, but it features person B. And I'm hooked on because I want to see what happens when person B and person A meet in the dark alley to exchange the drugs.
1: You'll find that too. And I watch, uh, speaking of things that were not super proud of. I watched the Housewives franchise. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I'm also a college professor. But um, anyway, I watched the Beverly Hills one and the New York one. And their pacing is so similar. I can see how Andy Cohen has totally stolen from the daytime format because it is so much slower than these these other series, even Downton Abbey, which seems to have far more episodes per season than others. But because they're looking at 25 episodes over a course of a season, they will be talking about the same conversation over an hour over the next, you know, four or five episodes. They're still talking about the same conversation and all of the reverberations of that conversation of whatever who said, she said, they said. And I give a crap about that, which I find actually a little astounding. I do. I care.
2: Screenwriting, especially serial TV drama, is all formula. And it's just what pace you put on that formula. But you can watch one episode of a comedy or a drama and see the exact same formula story A, story B, story C, story A resolution, story B. You know, it's all a formula. And you just have to master the formula and tweak it a little bit for what you're trying to do.
0: I wish I had counted, maybe these are not distinct stories, but in that episode of General Hospital that I was watching, it seemed like it was A through E, at least. Like, it was a lot of different scenes, and maybe some of these were just different characters that were talking about the same thing, or, you know, related somehow to the same missing person plot or something like this, and so it wasn't really that much to wrap my head around. But to get it all at once there, I would be extremely surprised if there was, you know, because I guess I'm familiar with this with, like, sitcoms, Exactly what you're saying, Kayla, where you have at most three stories, probably more like two stories. There's one main one, and then there's the B-plot, and you could kind of write that up. But if somebody said, okay, here's how you have seven different things that are, are distinct groups of characters that are going to be having dialogue in different places, and somehow not much is actually going to happen. Like, there's going to be just talking And talking about something that did happen, but that doesn't seem like a formula to me. But you're saying that actually it is...
2: It's 100% a formula. And it is writers sitting down and literally plotting out all of those beats of when story A happens, one story B, story C, story D, how many stories you want. I think Grey's Anatomy is a great one to look at. I love Shonda Rhimes. I think she's incredibly talented, but Grey's Anatomy is a great one to look at because you have the storyline of the doctors, you have the storyline of the patient, you have a storyline of another doctor, another patient. And if you sit down and take the moment to watch them, you can see how the formula goes. And sometimes there's a disruption to the formula. It certainly happens. And that can really keep us more invested when it breaks off what we expect. But hers are a really great example of, of how you do that formula.
1: As somebody who teaches storytelling, and I write stories, you know, it's all about character change. And I see that in episodic television, even if it's a serial, even if it's serialized, for each episode, there will be a change in the character. They will come to some, they will have like a mini arc within a larger arc. And you don't necessarily see that. But certainly, again, it comes down to pacing you don't see that in an episode of a soap opera in the same way, which I find fascinating because in my brain, I've been told, and I tell you know, like my students who are trying to write like a short story or something in ten pages or something, that their character, a story is all about character change. And if you don't see that, you know, for me, when I see that on daytime television, I don't see that in that episode, yet I'm still. As a viewer, I still keep coming back, or I did when I watched them in the late 80s. Because you're
2: trained to know that it's coming, and you want to get to it. And because it's every day, the hope is tomorrow we're going to get to the other end of the arc. And that is kind of the brilliance of soap operas, is that they just get you a little bit there, and then you have to wait two episodes, and then you're going to get to that arc. It's kind of like a delayed gratification. Yeah. And you know you're going to get there. And, and that's one of the things we talk about a lot in, in screenwriting is that the audience is trained. They're trained to expect things to, okay, this is the violation of the world. This is the, the call to action. This is the sidekick. This is, you know, the final fight. They're trained to expect those things, and soap operas deliver on them. They don't always deliver on them in the same episode or within a few episodes, but they deliver on them. And that's what keeps people going because they can get to it. They just have to wait to get there. They have to tune in tomorrow to get to that.
0: So is there a central shtick for any of the major daytime soap operas? What I mean by this is, so I've been watching, for instance, The Good Doctor, which is super soapy. And if you just took out the, you know, it would be general hospital if you just took out the uh, dealing with the patients part and like, you know, the the ER style, but it has as its central shtick that here is a doctor that is autistic. And so it's sort of like a genius who has social problems dealing with his environment. So everything that is not related to him, I sort of don't care that much about, but you know, they try to grow your interest over time for the other doctors to make it more like Grey's Anatomy, more like. ER. And and of course, it has the medical drama being, you know, just like the detective story and the law thing, like, you know, something that has independent interest that you'll, whereas General Hospital, I see no evidence that like, they care that you're learning about diabetes or whatever. You, you think they've been on so long, maybe they really have explored some diseases in the way that medical dramas have. And Breaking Bad, Brian Cranston started on a soap. And so I saw him on this story of soaps documentary from abc from a year and a half ago or so just defending you know breaking bad was a total soap of course breaking bad had at his as its central plot this one character and his his development and learning about the world of drugs that he's getting involved in so like even if you did not really care about like who was sleeping with who and some sort of the side things that were going on there was that central thing to drive it whereas i feel like Empire is maybe a, a contemporary or Nashville. I've seen part of both of those shows are maybe more like the daytime soap formula. At least some of them that I've heard where it's more like a family that or succession is another a family that has a lot of power and has internal dynamics. And it's sort of like that's the framing device, but you can't have anything more specific. I guess dark shadows was a notable exception of my mother mentioned this is like the only soap opera she ever liked, but like, okay, you've got a vampire or something at the center of that that's a little weird. But everything else in the you know two episodes of that that I also watched to prep for this seemed like very typical soap pacing, at least as, so far as I could tell, given that it was stuff from the 60s.
1: The reaction shot that they talked about in that story of soaps was something that I hadn't thought about, actually, until they mentioned it, that idea that... And I think this is under the Idea that they're making soaps are made by women for a female audience, right? The focus of the camera would go onto the person who is receiving the information or who is reacting to whatever is happening to them, which to me sounds almost literary, right? Because when you're reading a novel or something, or you're reading a memoir, you are really getting into the head of how this person is being affected by the things that are going around them or the things that they're actually doing. And I just thought that that was such an interesting distinction that soaps have is that it's not just about a character who has agency, right? Which is the typical kind of storyline of the hero's journey. Here you have characters who also are taking in information. And it's, you know, and the focus is on that long reaction shot that you get before you cut to commercial, which always seems a little uncomfortable to me. But still, that's what you get. And that's what you come back for as an audience.
0: And you could put the stinger over that, I guess. What are they even looking at? I love shows don't actually show you what they're reacting to.
2: It's that
1: uncomfortable eye contact.
2: It's quite interesting, too, because they were designed around commercials. So if you look at some of the older soaps, the commercial time, you know, the running time of the story is different than what we have today because your commercial slots are different. So that's one of the interesting things we talked about a little bit in, in writing, but, but not a lot is that, you know, you have to make money. Commercials are how you make money. This is the money-making empire. You have to adjust for that.
1: Yeah, and that time limit that they have, you know, the certain number of minutes, you know, like a sitcom is what, 22 minutes? So they can add in eight minutes of, of commercials. I mean, who watches commercials anymore these
0: days? I'm trying to remember now if the show 24, you know, because it was in real time, if they actually picked it up, you know, like they knew how long the commercials were and made that like as if the characters were doing other stuff during the time or they just, I think they just stopped it and then moved it on. <laughs> Yeah, because otherwise you couldn't end on a cliffhanger because you'd be like, and then, you know, something exciting is about to happen. Three minutes later, it's all resolved and they're on doing something else like you'd have to just make every commercial break while they were just driving somewhere, which might have been the case. I don't remember that show well enough. I only watched one season of that.
1: Oh, I remember that show, too. (laughs) And I used to look to see if Jack Bauer would ever eat dinner, you know, go to the
0: bathroom.
1: Right. Do you ever take a pee break? Yeah. Well,
0: they're showing somebody. They're not just showing the same character for 24 hours. They're, they go to the hijackers or whatever during that time.
2: Conveniently, also not at home having dinner. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> what will the next point in the discussion be? Stay tuned till after these sponsor messages. I'm excited to tell you about the new Pretty Much Pop sponsor, Nebbia. Backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook, the Nebbia by Moan Spa Shower is designed by former Tesla. NASA, and Apple engineers who spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that saves water and is anything but ordinary. Nebbia is known for its advanced shower technology, and the Nebbia by Moen spa shower is the most advanced shower yet. It's got twice the coverage and half the water usage of standard shower heads. So think about this. The coverage, why they call it a spa shower is because it just really fills the space. In a normal shower, I'm like rocking back and forth trying to keep all of my body warm. Nebia generates atomized droplets that provide a powerful spray, rinsing shampoo and conditioner out of even the thickest hair. And I like the water savings. Lower your water bill, good for the environment. With easy self-installation, Nebbia by Moen can be installed in 15 minutes or less without the need for contractors, plumbers, or broken tile. If you can change a light bulb, you can install Nebia by Moen. And given that I was able to do it, I'm pretty sure you could handle it. Nebbia also offers sleek and sustainable bathroom accessories such as shower shelves, shower curtains, hooks, and what they provided me with, bath mats. The Nebbia by Moen Shower Spa starts at just $199. And for pretty much pop listeners, the first 100 people to use the code pretty at nebbia.com We'll get 10% off all Nebia products. Go to nebia.com/pretty. That's n e b i a.com/pretty to check out what they have to offer. Save 10% off all Nebia products. Again, that's nebia.com/pretty. Use the code pretty to save 10%. Also, if you're carrying a credit balance, this can really feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of debt. Upstart can help you make that final payment so you can get ahead. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment. Upstart knows you're more than just your credit score, and is expanding access to affordable credit with a five minute online rate check. You can see your rate upfront for loans between one thousand to fifty thousand dollars. You can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com/pretty. That's upstart.com/pretty. Don't forget to use our URL. To let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash pretty. But yes, all this was just saying something about pacing and story structure. You mentioned, Sarah Lynn, the connection to the housewives franchise. So the connection between reality TV, this was also something that was raised very much in the story of soaps that was sort of the, here's my excuse why soaps are not as big a thing anymore because The whole world became a soap. We discovered with the OJ trial and the OJ chasing his Bronco down the, you know, that was so soapy and it was real life. And so that was, you know, the, the launch of the real world and reality television took a lot of the same appeal. It took market share away from that, but because it's real, it seems like it's better. You don't have to have the suspension of disbelief. Well, maybe you have to disbelieve that it's not the producers manipulating the, the people but at least it's actual people saying real things.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the OJ trial did two things. For one, it was stranger than fiction. That was, I remember that. I remember exactly where where I was when I was watching that that Bronco chase. And it was stranger than fiction. The trial was just bizarre. But it also gave people a break because that the trial was on during the day. And so people had a break from watching their soaps and they discovered that they didn't need to come back there was something here that was equally if not more compelling to watch during the day and after that break i think a lot of the audience just never returned to daytime tv and that's really when you saw a big drop off in the number of soaps on the air
0: and i guess the consequent or you know simultaneous rise in nighttime soaps which i think that's what prestige tv has really that the succession or the shows like that that i was mentioning are more related to the dynasty than they are to one life to live or whatever.
1: Oh yeah. Did you guys watch any of those nighttime soaps from the 80s like Dynasty and Dallas and Falcon Crest? I
2: haven't watched any of those, but i feel like everybody knows about RJ being shot in Dallas. Yes. Like that is just one of those cultural things everybody knows.
1: JR, JR, JR. JR.
0: Yes. I remember talking about that when I was five or something, like, and I have no idea what the show was. But everybody's heard about it. But I think we were like acting it out. We were like yeah. doing games related to this thing that we don't know what it is at all.
1: And just stuff that like <laughs> lives in the culture. Like there was a whole season that was a dream. Do you remember that? <laughs> it was all I a dream. hearing about, came about that. From yes. Dallas.
2: Wasn't that the ending of the Bob Newhart show too, or one of his, you know, we woke up and he's like, melodrama, deus ex magna.
1: (laughs) And all of the, um, the teen nighttime soaps, like 90210 and Melrose Place. Like I was totally obsessed with all of that when I was in college and afterwards and that was once a week you know and it wasn't filmed in the same way but it still had all of those same elements it was all very relationship driven there are a lot of love stories there were some you know ripped from the headlines stuff in there too but a lot of it also was for lack of a better word like kind of stupid but entertaining at the same time
0: well and i've been wondering about this it was described in the documentary as tv by women for women and so the fact that I- You know, I and everybody else that I associate with might consider these trashy. Like, well, is that just us being sexist? Is that just... But I acknowledge that stupid action movies that mostly only guys want to watch are stupid. And that that's appealing to like a base part of my nature. And I don't think it's like anti-male to say that those are trashy. So is something parallel to that happening here? Or is there really just... I should acknowledge based on liking Breaking Bad and Down Abbey and all the stuff. Like, no, okay, it's a different style of filming. They weren't as careful. Maybe it's like, you know, Ed Wood, if you remember that film about Ed Wood with like, oh, nobody's going to remember the details. That like when you're filming in that sort of, you know, and I'm not t- necessarily talking about General Hospital right now when all these innovations, but even now, the fact that they're working at that pace, you would think, I guess I was surprised when, in watching that episode and how reasonably good all the acting was. It was not like I expected like from telenovelas and things of this 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 extreme melodrama and just uh, acting, you know. This, I kind of associate that with this is who you could get to do these roles. And like, but no, it was actually like a very strong on the whole crop of actors. There's a million people that they could pick from in New York City who are struggling. So of course, any show can get good people and their writing is also <laughs> hard to get a job in so you could probably get good writers and as long as it's you don't feel like it is a machine cranking out crap in the way that maybe it is with some children's shows then like no this is a legitimate art form it just is different conventions and the fact that you know i'm not the target audience is you know the source of my resistance
1: originally they were all filmed in new york and so you have all of these broadway actors all of these very well-trained hungry actors who just want a job One of the people I interviewed to get kind of the inside scoop on soaps for my book was an actor named Robert Desiderio. He's married to Judith Light, who he met while working on One Life to Live back in the early 80s. And so he let me know, you know, basically all of the day-to-day stuff that goes into it. But he said that they would go and they would film for, you know, do a 12-hour day and then go do plays that night. You know, can you imagine that? that schedule. And so you've got a pretty big talented pool to choose from, you know, in these soaps. And there were so many of them. And a lot of them did go on to do bigger and better things. I mean, you don't see that, for example, like in the wrestling, <laughs> maybe the rock, I guess, is your breakout <laughs> star. <laughs> I don't really know. But if that's like what soap operas are to men, you just don't have the same, you know, return on on your investment really. When it comes to those actors going off and doing something really different and creative and smart.
2: And I think, too, if you look at sort of the history of media, you know, you have high art and you have low art. High art, opera, you know, dramatic theater. These are rich, typically, you know, white, upper middle class people consuming this. You have things like vaudeville and burlesque that are lower art forms. Certainly, a melodrama goes in there for a while, and they have a different target audience. And as you see things develop, the idea of soaps being made by women for women put them into, I think, naturally kind of that sexist low art form, you know, it's just for housewives and housewives don't count for anything because, you know, they're not making money and they're not contributing to the economy and it falls into that. And there's a bit of accidental sexism maybe that comes with that. It's not necessarily an intentional thing, but, you know, if you associate naturally these types of program with people who you might typically discount their value in society, you're going to discount the entertainment that's designed for them. And I think recognizing that and being able to think critically about that going forward is what we need to do.
1: Yeah, that was also one reason why they were a typically male executives would leave kind of these daytime shows alone so that they could talk about the issues that were that mattered to women.
0: When I imagine in a less condescending way than after school specials, you know, the way that we were as young people delivered up to hear, learn about what bulimia is or whatever. Like it's the Seventh Heaven. Oh, man. <laughs> brutal. <laughs>
1: Best little girl in the world.
0: <laughs> that is what I was thinking specifically of.
1: <laughs> also, often with who is the actor that was the star of that? Jennifer Jason Lee.
0: Jeff. Yes. Yes. These people that often go on to do, I think my, my sister had called me up like, we just watched Jan from The Office in an after-school special as a teenager. Like, I don't remember what the thing was, but like...
2: They can go have actual careers. I mean, Jennifer Jason Lee played Lady Bird Johnson in a film about Lyndon Johnson. Just throwing that out there.
0: <laughs> well, I, yeah, I think it's just, it is hard to get acting jobs. And so probably often, action movies are probably an exception that, all the side characters in Predator or whatever the Predator nine or, you know, are probably not like the Shakespearean actors that then went on to do great things. You have to have some, yes, if you're casting people because they look buff, I guess that was a fear is that maybe in soaps, they're casting people specifically because they're the prettiest people around. And so it's going to be more of the models, you know, that is going to be the pool as opposed to people from Broadway. You were saying
1: pretty people, in the entertainment industry, as we all know, are kind of a dime a dozen. So (laughs) if you don't have some talent, you're not going to go very far. If you're not easy to work with, forget about it. I could see how this would be just the best training ground. You really learn how to work. And if you're not willing to put in the time and put in the effort, if you come in unprepared, forget about it. You're done.
0: Maybe friends is just a a bad did not help the reputation of soap operas that, like that, this dopey character who doesn't remember his lines and just seems like so incompetent probably could not function in an actual soap opera environment. Uh,
1: yeah, I don't know, Joey. <laughs> There's so
2: much talent out there, and there are so many people that are dreaming of that Oscar-winning moment that we're not bereft for talent. And this is a great place for people to start and to get noticed. And writers are told you'll get picked up from soaps. That's, you know, you start there, you can get picked up and have your own TV show. It's a starting ground for so many people because the volume is so intense that they have to fill. And the audience is there and sturdy and they can bring in a new character without losing half of their audience.
1: Yeah, and it's a steady gig because I would even think that, as a writer with these shows that are limited series you're stitching together it's like freelancing sounds like to me i mean i guess it is freelancing but you know you're stitching together these different shows you're always going for the next job i could absolutely see why someone would want to be on some episodic network television show whether it be a soap opera or Seinfeld or This Is Us, you know?
2: And it's a decent living. My uh, TV writer teacher when I was at Central writes for Doctors, which is a long, long running soap. She's been writing a couple episodes for them every year since the I think, like mid-80s. And it's steady, reliable income. And when you are in the arts, that is not typical. I have a day job and I have a day job for a reason because I... Too paranoid to live in that sort of financially vulnerable, vulnerable space that you have to be in. And soaps offer you a lot of protection for that. I mean, Ellen Pompeo has been in Grey's Anatomy for what? They're like 15, 16 seasons now. She's the highest paid woman in television right now. And she got there by sticking it out and doing the long way. And, you know, it's hard to blame her for that. If you have a job that you enjoy, it's challenging, and you're making good money, and you're comfortable, maybe that's better than the dream of the Oscar.
0: So here's something I should have thought of and researched before we started, which is (laughs) there's this division between daytime Emmys and regular Emmys. And I would think with fewer and fewer daytime soap operas, I mean, I guess, are they competing just against game shows and talk shows and other daytime things? Or can they just get rid of that distinction and say, This is a piece of TV. Most people watch it streaming anyway. It doesn't really matter what time of day it is. We're going to have maybe different categories. We could still within the main Emmys, we're not going to have like a separate but equal. Like that seems like a, and the one hand, it gives people from soap operas an outlet to win many more awards than if they were just lumped in and had to compete with everything else. But you know, the way we're talking, if you consider Grey's Anatomy to be a soap opera, but yet it, you know, is just with the other dramas. Do any of us know about what is with this separation? and why it still exists. Well,
1: the daytime Emmys, they're in June, I think. The daytime Emmys are in June, and the nighttime Emmys are coming up. They're in September, right? And then they also have the technical Emmys. I mean, I know the distinction between daytime and nighttime, but I actually just had a friend who won an Emmy for a trailer that he wrote for a a Netflix show. He has the Emmy already in his office. (laughs) It's like... Wait, when did you get that? When did, that? when did that happen? So I don't understand it either. But it, and it does seem like even between the distinctions of the different, quote unquote, nighttime shows that you can watch anytime during the day seems a little bit tenuous, too. I think
2: Hollywood is a place that likes to celebrate itself. And as <laughs> much as we might think they should probably get away with just one party, they're going to make it as many as they can. And really, the technical Emmys is, is something that has been born out of a demand by the behind the scenes people to get the recognition for so long. It's been, oh, you know, look at the actors, you know, when it comes to Oscar time for costume or technical direction, they're just, you know, watching all the celebrities go to the bathroom and come back. That's the commercial break. And the team behind it do such vital work and and work so hard for it. And the recognition for so long hasn't been there that there's really been an active step to recognize them and take value in what they do. I trained as a stage manager before I went into writing. So I did all the behind the scenes stuff. Never did the acting. Don't put me on top of that stage when the light is on. But you don't run a production, especially a soap opera production, without such a talented, intense technical crew. There was a big excitement within my, my art community when sound design and sound editing got added into the Oscars because it, it is so laborious and it is so vital to any film that you see. Jaws is not that stressful without the soundtrack behind it. It's just not. You mute it, You can watch the whole thing without any anxiety. You take it off. (laughs) That builds it. And for so long, those people were ignored. So I think that's a great thing they've done, but I don't think we're ever going to see them condense parties. They're going to celebrate as many times as they can, as many ways as they can.
1: (laughs) That's a good point.
2: (laughs) You know, once you're done with senior prom, then the Oscars is all you have to look forward to after
0: that.
1: (laughs) It's just weddings and funerals after that, I guess.
0: Pretty much. As much as we've been talking about the sort of shrinking overall market share of soap operas, just in that there are fewer of them, of course, everything is becoming niche. So that even, you know, primetime shows are judged differently based on their ratings than they would have before. So, you know, it could be just that this is a niche. It is still thriving. I also watched in preparation for this. I turned on The the Bold and the Beautiful, which happened to be like, I can't figure out how many, whether it's the 7,000th episode or... The millionth ep- it, it was a lot of damn episodes, <laughs> and it just happened to be, this is the one that I tuned in, you know, interviews with everybody involved and showing how they like went overseas and they're worshipped like the Beatles, that it seems like, yes, okay, if there's a niche that you don't know why it's popular, it's because internationally they love this. Like maybe also just places in the US outside your own scope, but they were doing these things to giant amphitheaters in Italy or something like this. So yeah, so I don't know what to make of that in terms of that continued fandom and just the way the niche has twisted. If that says just something about the state of the various cultures now or what?
1: Well, everything's niche now. You don't get the numbers. What are Nielsen ratings anymore, right? So it's like you don't get tens of millions of people watching something unless it's the Super Bowl. That's now our our litmus test. And, you know, and he used to get those numbers, you know, during a very special episode of, I don't know, some sitcom or something. different
0: strokes, different strokes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Nancy Reagan came on,
1: <laughs> or, you know, or even Luke and Laura or who shot Jr. You know, we don't have these, the same conversations over shows. I mean, one, because we're not watching them at the same time anymore. You know, I mentioned the white Lotus, that new show, that we're watching right now. I think we have one more episode left, but that's not become a cultural conversation just yet. It's still everything is so niche now. And I, and I think about soap operas, which already, you know, in a way had audiences who were, you know, a little bit marginalized where do they go? Do they go on the internet now, you know, or could they survive on something like Hulu or on, you know, could new episodes survive on on a streaming platform? I don't know, because it's, you know, those shows are actually thrive from that shared experience, that everyday viewing. You're not supposed to take a break. We've seen what happens when you take a break from soaps, people don't come back.
0: There's also just a technical difference of having these. So now that all TVs are, you know, new TVs are these super high frame rates. I guess that was the thing that distinguished soap operas in the first place is because they were on videotape at a higher frame rate than, you know, people were used to watching regular TV, you know, Little House in the Prairie, something like this on film that just definitely had a more cinematic quality. If something is on videotape, like a sitcom or a soap, then it looks somehow cheaper. And now we've gotten to the point, well, everything is just using digital video and they could make it look all the same. And in fact, I think I have to adjust my TV so that my, you know, the latest movie does not strike me with such brightness and crazy clarity that it looks like a soap opera. The telenovela effect, it's been referred to.
1: Oh, yeah, I know. I just watched, somebody just got a new TV and we decided we were going to break it in by watching... um the Elena Ferrante series. My favorite friend, my brilliant friend. And this is prestige TV on HBO based on best-selling novel series. And we were really excited about it. And it looked like a soap opera. I I couldn't, I was like, and even the acting seemed artificial. Everything about it seemed artificial until I went and looked at my poor man's TV and it looked just fine. (laughs) I was like,
0: "Oh, thank God!" You just have to change it to, you know, change the settings. Yeah, I, mean, I, I that's don't remember. What it is.
1: I'm not very technical.
0: <laughs> but yeah, you really—if you feel like you're right there on the set with them—well, then it looks like people talking on a set, and that, that's the complaint about soap operas: is that it? You know, if you're going to do that, I guess I've changed my mind a little bit about sitcoms in the last year because it seemed like they start there live in front of a studio audience, but if it's actually live in front of a studio audience and the audience is laughing, then it's okay. But it's because that was established as a convention, and then you have like the Brady Bunch and things that are not in front of a studio audience, but have the the canned laugh track. Like This started this whole terrible, you know, just these associations that makes it so really hard for a lot of people to watch anything with a laugh track at all. We're just so used to The Office and things like this. You know, soap operas have never had to do with, deal with that exactly, but they do have that sort of live performed in a theater feel?
1: Yeah. Well, there's even those, you can see the going back and forth, you know, like with WandaVision, for example, the way that they shot that was very much like a 50s sitcom to 60s show and things like that. And, or um, Kevin can go F himself, goes back and forth between those. And so I think it's whatever genre you're watching and, and soap operas are, you know, their own thing. I think it goes back to what you said at the beginning, which is there there's a sense of, you know, suspending that disbelief for a little bit. You go, Okay, I'm gonna settle in. I know what I'm getting. I know what this you know, what you said, Kayla, I know what the story structure is like, I know what the pacing is like, and so I can anticipate, I can so suspending that disbelief and, and going along with the pacing is just part of the deal of sitting in and watching a soap. Did you
2: guys ever when you were younger and you were watching things, the commercial break? where you timed it perfectly to like go and get your snack and go to the bathroom and come back just as it was starting like that. I remember that so much when you would just be like nailed it every time. <laughs> and it's because it, it's, it's what you're expecting. It, it's the convention that you have. And now, you know, smart TV, smart technology, we don't have that anymore. You know, the technology I think is a few steps ahead of the media and the content we're creating it'll get there it's just there's a little bit of a lag between the two of them
1: there's that sense of um like i if i was watching with my siblings or something and somebody was in you know they they yell out back on you just don't get that anymore you can just pause it and you can make yourself a really big cheese board if you want and come on back
0: <laughs> well you're you're bringing me back to i think i had as a as a restless child like sort of an obstacle course worked out of like oh, yeah. <laughs> i can't wait for the commercial to be over so i will run out of the room, like into the living room. And jump. it was like a specific thing that I knew that I could do. If I go up and down the stairs twice and come back, you know, that I will hit that sweet spot. As you were mentioning, yeah.
2: <laughs> I used to chase the cats like, all right, commercial. Where's the cat? I want to pet the cat. And you would like, run around for a little bit and like, okay, it's not going to happen. Get back to the TV. in time.
0: <laughs> well, thanks to both of you for joining me for this. I guess any sort of last points that you wanted to make before we get out of here?
1: I think that the evolution of our mass entertainment is actually a a good thing. So even though I have kind of a nostalgia for those old soaps, you know, I watched Santa Barbara and all of those channel, those uh, I want to say Channel 4 soaps, those NBC soaps, the fact that Entertainment has evolved, I think, is is a good thing overall, even if they end up, you know, those traditional daytime soap operas don't make it. The fact that we're evolving is, is actually not bad at all.
2: And we can enjoy them for what they were. I think understanding the realm in which they existed and the realm in which they were enjoyed is the best way to enjoy them. Don't watch the film comparing it to the book. It's going to be different. Don't watch the 80s soap comparing it to the 2010s primetime drama. Just enjoy it for what it is and what it was meant to be.
0: Well, and I just wonder if any of these have made or will make the transition, you know, if they decide we just can't keep making General Hospital this way, but there's enough people that like it and, and we've built up this mythos of the town that it's in and, the and the, you know, it's, it's just like the Marvel Universe and we'll, uh, you know, just make it an hour-long weekly thing. And we'll keep the characters and we'll even keep the plots going. Just make it a new season, but just retool it because like, this is now the way people want to watch stuff. They want to watch a 10-episode, one-season thing, and then we can take five months off and then we can do another one. And I don't know. It seems like a thing that might have naturally happened, but maybe the fans of this are so attached to that particular way of watching things. That as long as those fans exist then those will these will stay in the form that they are in.
2: If it ain't broke, don't rewrite it.
0: Mhm. All right, so long listeners.
1: Goodbye.
0: Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You can also now get all the bonus content directly through Apple Podcasts by signing up for a paid subscription there, which gets you ad-free episodes and extra talking not only for Pretty Much Pop, but also for my other podcasts, Nakedly Examined Music and Philosophy versus Improv. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.